Welcome to episode 20 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. On this week's uh, episode, Clayton and I will be talking about next week's readings and answering some questions. Let's dive in. Sounds good. Did we have any questions this week? We do. Oh. So the first question, especially as we're kind of coming off of the David stories, and of course we have the whole rest of of, uh, Kings and Chronicles to get through, and so we'll kind of continue to see this theme of of divine silence in a lot of these distressing or violent stories where mm-hmm. sometimes like with David and Bathsheba, the text tells us, but the thing David had done displeased Yahweh. Right. But more often than not, like that's the exception more often than not, there is no like something, you know, somebody does something like with Amnon and Tamar there, there is no like, but what Amnon had done displeased Yahweh, you know, or when Moses murders a guy, there's no, you know, so you kind of see this throughout and we've talked about before that the way that we read that, you know, is not that, well, because God didn't say anything, that must mean he liked it, <laughs> you know, or he approves. Right. The silence <laughs> means approval, whereas we're saying, no, we think that silence doesn't necessarily mean approval. But I was just wondering if, if we could maybe tease out a little bit more about, like, why the the authors of Scripture kind of not including the Lord's kind of specific reaction and response, like that that's an invitation to, or I don't know, just like, what do we think is happening there? And why do, why do we tend to read it as not necessarily saying that, that it's God's tacit approval because he didn't say anything? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Well, I think the reason we tend to read it that way is that we believe that God is all powerful mm-hmm. and could stop it if he wanted to. And if it was his purpose to do so, he, he could stop it. There is no thing he couldn't stop. Since we see ourselves as having a personal relationship with God, we imagine him like we would a friend or a parent, and we cannot imagine a loving parent allowing the things that God allows. And I think that that is the source of the frustration. So when the biblical authors don't tell us the why, we feel like that is a cop-out. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I were to hear... This is, I mean, this is not the same thing, and I know that, but I think this is why we have this emotional reaction. If I were to hear about abuse happening in a home, and one of the parents just stood there while it was happening and did not stop it, especially if they were the one very capable of stopping it, we would blame that person for having done wrong. The lifeguard that lets a person drown, we Mm -hmm. blame for doing something wrong. And I think that that's a fair question. And there's, I think, really good answers and discussion to be had here. And I think we have to avoid flippant and easy ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we can talk about that if you'd like. But I think, I mean, does that does that reflect well what you're bringing up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just this idea of, you know, and this connects to another thing that we've talked about many times is that the Bible is not a rule book or the Bible is not, it contains rules, but that's not the whole of what it is. And the Bible is not like each passage is like a little lesson for you to say, okay, great. So God wants me to do X or God wants me to not do X. Right. Now, many, many parts of the Bible do lend themselves to that. And that's fine. You know, and it's, and it's not bad at all to, to take a direct, you know, and I think the the Holy Spirit uses scripture constantly in our lives, you know, to do that. That might be separate from the original intention, but that's okay. You know, I mean, I think the Lord does that. And, and as long as we don't, project that back onto the Bible to say, ah, this meaning that I personally have found is what <laughs> they meant. Uh-huh. No, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's slow down. And that's, again, part of the goodness of reading it with other people is they're able to kind of call, 
you know, red red card you if you're doing something with the text that you shouldn't be doing. But I guess maybe more more so of like like I think maybe even like Je- Jephthah's daughter, Jephthah's vow, you know, that Yahweh does nothing and says nothing, you know, and so it's like, well, so did he did did he like it, <laughs> you know, like did he want Jephthah to do that? And I think that I was reflecting on it with just the differences between how ancient Hebrews tell stories and how modern Americans tell stories. That you know, you watch our most popular movies. And, like, generally speaking, they're pretty simple, and the point is said often and directly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because the assumption is made that we're not going to get it otherwise. Right. And, like, the artsy, woohoo, you know, sorts of movies only some of us enjoy, you know, the amb- I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> that my, a couple of times, you know, my siblings and I have watched some artsy movies with my parents <laughs> and that have ambiguous endings. You know, and there was one time where we were done and then my mom turns and looks at us and goes, were we supposed to enjoy that? (laughs) (laughs) And that's not, you know, that's not a comment on them particularly, but just that that is our kind of style of storytelling, right? Uh, We expect our jokes to have a punchline, you know. And I think that for some of these Bible stories, there isn't, the punchline is not included, not because there isn't one. But because it should be obvious that Yahweh yes. did not want Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter. Yes. There's no question about that. And that I guess in some ways the Bible, that it is written to adults who are expected to be able to go, hmm, that was bad. Like on our own. Like we shouldn't sure. be, have to be told that Shechem shouldn't have raped Dinah. Right. <laughs> you know, like outright. He shouldn't have. And we know it. You know, or that Moses shouldn't have murdered that Egyptian or that, you know. And so I think that sometimes there's just we- this weirdness of like, well... And we talked about this a few weeks ago. David did a lot of raiding and a lot of violence. And that must mean that it was okay for what, whoever to do whatever that was violent, mm. you know, for God. It's like, hmm, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because here's, here's the secret, I guess, is that Jesus is the punchline of all the stories. Yes, if you're in doubt, <laughs> whatever the story is, Jesus is the punchline. And so if it's like, oh, okay, I guess that means I can also go raiding. You know, it's like, well, <laughs> did Jesus go raiding? No. Well, then there's there's your answer. There's how we how we think about that. And so I just thought that, that was worth yeah, touching absolutely. on a little bit. But do you have any other thoughts about well, that? Well, yeah. I mean, the I agree with all that. That leads up to, I think, and it's not something we have to tackle at the moment, the bigger question of why does God allow the bad things to happen? I mean, apart from his response, he's capable of stopping Jephthah and doesn't. He's capable of stopping the rape of Dinah and doesn't. And that I I think that kind of rolls, you know, that rock rolls all the way back to Adam and Eve. right? Yes, it does. I mean, it doesn't stop. And so we've got to, I think, wrestle with that. And I I don't know. I know that people experience their faith differently. I married a woman who does not wrestle with doubts or questions. I mean, she's a learner. She she knows her Bible well, but never in her life has she had a moment of, huh, I'm not sure I believe that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just always come easy to her. And one of the terms we have for that is blind faith. <laughs> and we, yeah, I know, right? But we, we tend to associate that badly. Scripture actually seems to say yeah. that that's not maybe, a bad maybe thing. childlike. Childlike, childlike faith, faith might be better. <laughs> yes, I'm not insulting my wife's faith. Trust me, hers is greater than mine. But I think that my faith is a little differently. And some of that may be not growing up in church or 
It just might be the way my mind works. And I know I'm not alone in this, but I really wrestle with these questions. Sure. Um, you and I have both encountered hard things in our lives. We've had moments where together we encountered terrible things. And the question of why did God let that happen is a, a question I go to a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's the easy answer for it is useful as long as you're not in the midst of anything hard, which is God has given us free will. Free will right. brings consequences, right? But every parent knows you give your child free will. And then sometimes you intervene to prevent the really bad things from happening. And mm-hmm. so the only thing we can conclude from that is that God does not deign the things that we think of as so bad they must be stopped as so bad they must be stopped. And there's a whole lot of, I think, rich things to dive into there. But if that makes you wrestle, I think that's o- that's okay. That's appropriate. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, we should wrestle with that. Well, and, and yeah, and I think the, the the voices of Scripture wrestle with it. Yes, they do. You know, I mean, so it's not like it's a settled, like, oh, okay, you know. I mean, we read the book of Job. <laughs> right. Well, and I think it is true. It's like the, that, you know, we reflect on this, these stories, and to say our choices, our choices really do matter. Like, there are stakes to what we do. And mm-hmm. yeah, there are guardrails, and God does sometimes deliver us from consequences. There are near misses. There are, you know... Whatever, you know, like those things do happen. And there's probably a lot that we have no idea that didn't happen, you know, because of God's uh, providential grace. I don't think, again, that does not like, oh, great. So now while I'm in the middle of this terrible thing, that makes me feel better because uh-huh. <laughs> the thing that's happening to you is the thing that's happening to you. And, and there's no, you know, uh, getting around that. But I think just, yeah, more from a, yeah, just a reading the Bible and trying to understand what it's for that these passages, these stories are meant to teach us, certainly, Mm -hmm. but in many ways they're meant to teach us in a, almost in like a negative, like we're looking at a photo negative of what life should be like. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Rather than being like, oh, okay, so we have permission to do these terrible things. (laughs) Yes. These are definitely pictures of, I mean, we get moments, uh, glimpses of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like mm-hmm. all through the Old Testament. We right. get these, we get these pictures, these moments, these these little promises. Solomon, especially in the the Chronicles stories that we're preaching through, and we've just finished reading through, right at the beginning of Solomon's reign, I think we have this picture that's like mm-hmm. things are the way they're supposed oh, to yeah. be, and yeah. still not perfect. No, but but I think better than they could be hoped for yeah. in any other time in life on planet earth and in our own lives we echo that right there's there's moments where everything seems good and right and it is i mean yes you can pick it apart right right right. (laughs) but these pictures in scripture are not meant to not meant to suggest that um everything is is actually good and right on a permanent basis they Mm -hmm. are pointing forward towards something Mm -hmm. but i think that these negative stories like jephthah and his daughter also point towards something Mm -hmm. which is exactly what life is like outside of the kingdom of god without god's influence and without human beings choosing him and the way he calls us to live continually this is the consequence and it's going to happen over and over and over again. And the unfortunate reality is even those of us who are his, who belong to him, who are covenant people, we are going to make those mistakes. Hopefully never like Jephthah does, but we're going to have those bad moments in our lives. And we should not take that as proof or evidence or a negative of anything about God 
I think in those moments we see the failures of humanity, not the failures of God. So our second question is a bit of a gear shift, uh, but just in our, especially going through the Torah, you know, we reference often some of the different books and and, uh, scholarship that we have been affected by and have relied on. And some of those folks are also followers of Jesus, but many of them are not. Mm. And so if if you could just kind of help unpack, like, how do we discern in dealing with non-Christian scholars who, quote unquote, don't get it? In the way that we do, but these are people reading the Bible, these are people studying the Bible, but not from a perspective of faith. Can we trust the insights that they have, or like how much should we be, should we use? And of course, not that a lot of our people are going to necessarily yeah. dive into these books, but were there pastors? And some of them will, you know, we recommend, I think, well, I'm pretty sure most of the books we recommend annually are written by Christians, but. Some of my, like, personal interest ones usually aren't, but the other two always are. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Hmm. But anyway, just that, anyway, so just that kind of how do we, yeah, if you could just, just even just your, you personally, like in that discernment process of of how do we sort through kind of what is a, what is a good and useful insight from a non-Christian scholar and then what is i don't know like just how do we think about that yeah well there's at least three categories of the non-christian scholar right there's the i think in in the case of torah studies especially there are jewish scholars Mm -hmm. who are non-christians and i think that there's something very special about reading the bible through the jewish lens Mm -hmm. right because there's a a woeful lack of familiarity among Christians of the Old Testament in general. Right. And that is not the case, especially among Jewish scholars. Especially for the Torah. Right. And so there's something, I think, precious about reading the Torah without the New Testament being given or in perspective that allows you to see it as it was seen, read, and understood by its original audience. Mm-hmm. And of course, they suffer the same issues with that that we do with reading the Gospels. I mean, there's a lot of time between then mm-hmm. and now. But they've sat in a tradition that has interpreted this Torah for thousands and thousands of years. And I think that there are really beneficial insights. The thing that we have to do there is just know that it's not the whole story. Right. And if anything in it contradicts things that we know from about scripture because of the New Testament or about who God is because of the New Testament, then we should not take it as authoritative in any way. But I I trust a Jewish scholar when I'm reading about Exodus. I mean, I think that's great. I don't see a problem with that. I do it frequently. I really enjoy reading through the rabbinical debates about some of those Old Testament laws. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been a, a delight for me this year. So that's one category. There's a second category of and the name that came to me immediately while you were talking was Ravi Zacharias. So Christian scholars that, and I, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> that are shown afterwards, after the book is written, to perhaps not have been the Christian we thought that they were. Not meaning that Christians can't, can't sin, but there are certain people who pass off scholarship while showing that their own heart is twisted by corruption, a desire to oppress and abuse, I don't think we should trust their works, Hmm. um, or I shouldn't say that. I don't think we should use their works. Um, I have not removed all of Robbie's books from my shelf just because I haven't gone through taking the time and hunted them down, hunted them down, but I will not go to them again Mm -hmm. ever. Um, and I think that there's not to say that he has to be wrong about everything he says. He's no more 
not a Christian than other non-Christians are. Mm -hmm. But there is something, I think, different about a Christian that has, in that sense, fallen from grace. Well, and it's almost like a moral apostasy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's really a category that's been discussed in church history. I don't know. But just, you know, because the kind of the classic apostates are those who are like, Jesus is not God, but I'm still (laughs) calling myself a Christian. You know, it's like, okay. Sure. Well, there's a whole lot of discussion about moral apostasy. Who just, who deny the faith through their reprehensible and systemic evil (laughs) like robbie there was a pope that toasted the devil once i mean there's there's been moral uh... issues and that's been discussed (laughs) and i think that the conclusion is that it's there's no good and hard and fast rule but when you look at the fruit of a person's life and you see that kind of twisted corruption in it something's wrong and it's better to stay away Mm -hmm. having said that this third category are non-christians so I found I find sometimes tremendous insight from non-Christian sources as they come to the Bible and they come to the Bible from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. And sometimes an outsider's perspective brings insight that is missed from the inside. Right. Especially in the context of ancient history, things happening in other cultures at the time, comparing the religious thoughts of the ancient Hebrews to some of the religious thoughts of the people around them, I think can bring a whole lot of nonsense or things I disagree with, but sometimes a really wonderful insight. So I watched, there was like a three hour lecture by a guy named Jordan Peterson, who as far as I know is not a Christian (laughs) um, about the, the Bible and specifically about the beginning of the book of Genesis. Uh And I listened to it on the background because I, it had been recommended to me um, as I did cleaning. And for a little while, I just thought this is kind of silly. And then there was tremendous insight because mm-hmm. he approached it as literature, which it is. Mm-hmm. And we tend to approach it with a whole lot of priors. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we sometimes miss insights that can be found by people without those priors. The trouble is you have to have the priors discernment. Priors meaning like assumptions. Assumptions, what, yeah. Like we already know what the story means. Yeah. yeah. The trouble is you have to have the discernment to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. Right. And a whole lot of that three-hour lecture was (laughs) Was utter nonsense. (laughs) But there was some really good stuff in it. And I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with you doing that. Not you, Ben, but our listeners. As long as they do that with discernment. Right. Well, and again, I think this is where reading in community is helpful, right? It's like you don't go listen or read something, take it as gospel truth, and then don't discuss it you know, with anyone else, because, I mean, that's just how we help one another, right? Because none of us are foolproof, you know, I mean, I think there's, and there's even people who are faithfully following Jesus, right? That doesn't preclude them from being wrong mm-hmm. about things, you know. I'm sure some of our cherished notions are probably Almost overblown certainly. or exaggerated or just flatly wrong. <laughs> N.T. Wright likes to say, yeah, N.T. Wright likes to say that he's wrong about 25% of the things he believes. And it's his student's job to figure out what 25% <laughs> that 25%, is. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I, and I think that there's, it's certainly, a, a, I think, just a call for humility. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate how you kind of laid that out. And and I think, yeah, especially the outside perspective is key of just allowing somebody who you know, who's looking at the Bible and other people come with assumptions as well. I mean, it's impossible not to, Mm -hmm. but I think to be looking at the Bible from a different set of assumptions means that maybe they can see our blind spots while we can see their blind spots, you know? And so it's like, so that, 
So that that dialogue or that kind of the back and forth there, I think, can just be very helpful. Um, one of the things I want to say, because I have to give a plug for this when I can, we're talking about the value of reading people with different perspectives, right, and different assumptions that they bring to the text. This is one of the major reasons why I've found such a love of church history. We do not have to actually go to outside the faith to find people that come to the scriptures differently than we do. Today, we can read people from different backgrounds, Christian backgrounds. Mm -hmm. An Anglican theologian is going to have different thoughts than a Baptist one, than a Mennonite one, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, Korean or Nigerian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But you, you magnify that when you separate not just Christian background, but you separate place, right? An African uh, pastor is going to see the scriptures differently. And you add another element to that when you change it by time. And so mm-hmm. when I read Martin Luther, he says things I would never say <laughs> in a sermon because I'm pretty sure he's just wrong. <laughs> At the same time... And boy, did he hate him some Jews. <laughs> he did. Yeah, well, I may edit that out, but it's true. <laughs> he did not it like the true. Jewish people. It is true. Um, but the, the, gosh, that's so terrible. It is terrible. But there's often times that I read and I am deeply convicted because he makes some kind of offhanded comment about Christians and wealth mm-hmm. that hits me right where I live. Mm-hmm. And he's not even trying to. In his mind, it's an obvious assumption. Right. And for us, we've gone completely a different direction, and it, it, it's shocking. Yeah. I think I cannot overstate the value in reading old books mm-hmm. and old Christian books in particular. They will often just level you with some of their insights. Mm. So the church history guy has to make a plug for church history. Sorry. That's all I have. Those were great. Tell us about the Psalms. All right, I have a summary for our readings for the week. We read about 40 psalms this this coming week. We will read about 40 psalms, ranging from Psalm 12 all the way through Psalm 101. Again, with skipping several of them because we've read several of them before as they related to the readings that we were doing at that time. So, I'm treating this kind of like an introduction to the book of Psalms and then specifically... I'm going to talk about our readings from this week. The Book of Psalms, the prayer and songbook of the Bible. In fact, the Hebrew word for psalm means something sung, and most of them were probably originally meant to be put to music. The interior lives of our greatest spiritual leaders and poets through history have been formed and driven by this book. If this is a book you've avoided because it doesn't have stories in it or because you don't connect with poetry too well, please hear me. You are missing something vitally important. So what do we know about the book of Psalms? The book of Psalms was written by many different authors over a very long period of time. And the historical and cultural background of the Psalms may begin with Moses. There's one Psalm that speaks of him as a contributor or as the author or perhaps as the one the psalm was written with in mind. But it focuses in the time of King David, and it does not end until the post-exilic period, the time when Israel comes back from the exile. Almost half of the psalms are attributed to David. There's 73 that are either to him or for him. But other authors are mentioned, and many psalms are anonymous. The psalms have been preserved and treasured and kept. They're in the Bible because they've served to instruct the people of God about God, about themselves, and about the world, and about the life of faith. 
And indeed, it is here in the book of Psalms that we learn more about Yahweh than anywhere else in Scripture. Hear me, you do not learn more about Yahweh in any other book of the Bible than in the Psalms. And I want to talk a bit about that, but first there's, there's a necessary word about reading the Psalms. One of my favorite books about the Psalms, and it's one of my favorite books because it's so accessible, it's easy to read, is C.S. Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms. He does not go psalm by psalm talking about things, but he covers some big themes, issues, struggles, Uh, with reading the Psalms, and it's not written to academics, it's not written at a high level, it's very accessible, and it's from a man who loves this book and is sharing about it, and I've found it to be deeply helpful, and I want to share... It's an excellent, excellent book. Yes, C.S. Lewis, Reflections on the Psalms. So I want to share just a paragraph about, as he talks about the Psalms and how we should read them. The Psalms are poems and songs... They are, not ident- or they are not doctrinal treatises or even sermons, and they must be read as poems, as lyrics, with all the licenses and all the informalities, the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections, which are proper to poetry. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. No less than French must be read as French or English as English. Otherwise, we shall miss what is in them and think we see what is not. Oh, that was a pretty good summary about how we need to approach the Psalms as we read them. So with that said, what do we learn about Yahweh in our, in our Psalms for this week? I want to give you just some of what we can glean from our readings this week. Our God's name is Yahweh, and he is the creator and ruler of all, encompassing the earth and its inhabitants. He is the Almighty, the King of glory, whose goodness and uprightness shine brightly. Yahweh takes sinners under his wings, instructing them in his ways, guiding them and all who uphold his covenant by his loving and faithful nature. He is our light and our salvation, the stronghold of our lives, the beautiful one that saves us. Yahweh is our rock, the source of strength and the shield that guards us. He's our ever-present helper, the holy God that thunders over the mighty waters and resonates with a voice that is both powerful and majestic. His voice strikes with lightning, shaking even the deserts, twisting oaks, and laying bare the forests. Enthroned above the waters, Yahweh reigns as the eternal king. He grants strength to his people and blesses them with abiding peace, giving them refuge beneath the shelter of his wings. He promises to make the righteous shine like the dawn, firmly guiding the steps of those who delight in him. Yahweh cherishes the just and never forsakes his faithful ones. In times of trouble, he becomes their stronghold. Is our helper and deliverer, he is our God, our protector, preserver, and sustainer. Though his anger may endure for a moment, his favor lasts a lifetime. He stands as our rock and fortress, offering refuge in times of trouble, preserving the faithful who seek him. Yahweh is our hiding place, our protector who shields us and surrounds us with songs of deliverance. He listens to our prayers, forgives our transgressions, bears our burdens, and provides a means of escape from death's grip. He rescues the poor from those who oppress them, extending his love to the heavens and his faithfulness to the skies. Like the highest mountains and the great deep, his righteousness and justice are unmatched. Yahweh exercises judgment over the earth and offers rest to weary souls. Both people and animals find preservation in his care. He cares for the land and waters, enriching them all. 
By his unfailing power, he rules forever, observing the nations with watchful eyes. Equitable in his governance, he guides all peoples. He listens to our prayers, forgives our transgressions, and the immeasurable worth of his love knows no bounds, and his eternal throne remains unchanging. Yahweh rides on the clouds. He's a father to the fatherless and defender of widows. He gathers the lonely, setting them in families, and leads the prisoners into freedom, accompanying them with joyful songs. And across the highest heavens, his voice thunders mightily, evoking awe and reverence. And while Yahweh's mercy knows no bounds, his wrath is unleashed upon those who harm his chosen ones. For there are none like him among the gods. As you read these psalms, I want to encourage you to ask, what does, it, what does the psalm say about Yahweh? What does it say about you? What emotion is captured in this psalm? And can you make this psalm your prayer? Because it is in that practice, I think, that you will find the deepest meaning of in reading the psalms. Well, that, <clears throat> that leads in nicely into kind of my first kind of more general question is just how, how can the psalms be read devotionally or how have they? Mm-hmm. And maybe even you can speak to if you have kind of your own personal practice of engaging with the Psalms because it's fine just to read them. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what the reading plan is next week. That's all good. But uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. All right. So how have they been read and how can they be read devotionally? There's a practice called psalmody, which is where you make the Psalm your prayer. Psalmody is usually um, the Psalms being spoken or sung in hear me, unless you have to read quietly speak the Psalms as you read them, read them aloud. They're meant to be read aloud. And that's a meaningful practice. And if that misses you, that's fine. But many of you will find that to be meaningful. But the Psalms have been a major part of the church's prayer life from the beginning. The earliest monks in the second, third, and fourth centuries, I mean, they made regular practices of reading through the Psalms. And even before that, the rabbis of Jesus's time. A rabbi was expected to go through the book of Psalms mostly every day. It takes about eight hours and they would pray through them. They knew them by heart. That's why we see the words of the Psalms so often, not only on Jesus's lips, but on rabbis of the time. We see the Psalms repeated a lot. This was their prayer book. And the the reason for that is it just, it has a, a Psalm for every occasion, every emotion, every experience can be found in there. So, How can you, reader, use them devotionally? I encourage you to spread them out. I mean, reading them all at once like this is fine. My encouragement would be to find somewhere, read them aloud, take a moment to reflect on each one. But I intersperse them in my devotional life. So Mm -hmm. I usually will read one or two psalms, depending on their length, with my prayer practice in the morning. And Mm -hmm. then I just recycle. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found is interesting is I recognize all the Psalms now. And every now and then lines from Psalms and so on, they stick. But they're my prayers. And I don't don't memorize them very well because I'm not trying to. I'm I'm praying them to God as I I say them. Um, And like I said, that has been a deeply meaningful and important practice for me. I encourage you to do so as well, especially if you struggle in your prayer life, knowing what or how to pray. This is your book. Mm -hmm. Use it. It will teach you how to pray. So then speaking with that, many of the Psalms have like prayers against enemies or Mm -hmm. like, you know, 
punch them in the face, huh. remove them from their place. Yeah, you know, we didn't. We we were not reading Psalm one hundred nine this week, but I mean that's the the, the technical terms, the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> so like, okay, so I'm reading a psalm, and then there's a couple lines about how you know I hope that all the evil people get scorched to ash by Yahweh. How do we? Uh, <laughs> how does that? How do we pray that? Do we pray that? Do we skip those lines? Do we, or just how do yeah. we think about that? There are a couple of answers to this. Mm-hmm. One of them is you can just skip them. I think you're missing something precious there. But yes, you can do that. You're not going to be harmed by skipping those Psalms. Psalm 109 again, and we'll talk about it more next week. And so I don't want to, I don't want to overdo the discussion here, but it's the, it's the picture of, of these kinds of Psalms. And I think one of ours is, we do have an imprecatory Psalm. It's a little lighter. So we're zeroing in on Psalm 18 here, and this is a good example of an imprecatory Psalm. So what do we do with this? Um, the first thing that that is helpful for me, and this doesn't answer all the questions, it answers some of them, is when I'm praying about my enemies in the Psalms, my I do have enemies. Mm-hmm. I have real enemies. And they're not the people that bother me. They're not the people who say mean things to me. They're not my adversaries in the workplace or at home or in my friend group or wherever. My enemies are spiritual. Mm. Um, the evil one hates me and wants to kill me. Mm-hmm. And he sends demons to torture and tempt me into turning away from Yahweh. He's an enemy. I can pray almost everything in the Psalms with him and his demons in mind. And yep. that alleviates a lot yes. of this for me. But it, that is too easy an answer. That does not alleviate all of it because that is not what the psalmists no. had in mind when they were writing the psalms. And so we have in Psalm 18, we have this being of David. I mean, this is a thing that David prayed. In fact, the <clears throat> the trouble with this is that still the violence of the psalms sometimes isn't all taken away by just praying them at the devil. One of the things we have to wrestle with is that we live in a time and a place where we are usually not exposed to real horror. Yeah. These psalms, especially the imprecatory ones, were cherished, sung, learned, and were hope and life-giving, especially not very long ago in America's history, to a group of people who had been um, oppressed, had dignity taken from them, had their lives stolen. So slaves very frequently prayed the imprecatory Psalms, made some of them into songs. Those are not the catchy ones you still hear on the radio, but they were there. Yeah. And the, the experience they found in that was to give voice to suffering. Mm. Because when you injure a person, really, truly injure them, and I don't mean, you know, you, you put a paper cut on their hand, but I mean, you harm the entire rest of their life, you're going to find the human reaction is one like we see in the imprecatory Psalms. Mm -hmm. Now, it's too easy to say, but that's not what Christians should do. I mean, that is true. The goal of a Christian is grace to live with forgiveness, even when we are harmed. But the 
first step of that process is giving voice to the experiences that are happening inside and taking those to Yahweh. And so if you, when you pray, if you're honest with yourself, you have probably had times that you prayed to God about feelings you had, desires you had that were not holy. Mm -hmm. Um, The desire to harm, to get back, to get revenge or vengeance. We often filter those internally because we know that we're not, we feel like we're not supposed to take those to Yahweh. And we pray nicer, holy prayers. But Yahweh wants it all. Go to him with that. And the thing of it is, when you've really been harmed, it's not the same process, I don't think. I, I can't step into that situation completely. But as I've read black theologians or black Bible scholars about this, mm-hmm. the the imprecatory psalms are not troublesome for them in the same way that they have been or that they are for me. Right. And I think it's because they are an opportunity for their people to find in Scripture a voice that suits their experience being taken to Yahweh. And so when I pray those, usually I'm I those are I am thankful that I am not living a life where I have those kinds of emotions. I am aware that that humanness lives in me, and I hope that if ever I do have something happen to me that causes those emotions to rise, I have the courage to take them to Yahweh and that he will help me sort them. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, I, I think that there's, I would almost say that they are actually a, a mm, like a branch of the lament psalms. Yeah. And we did, there, there were some lament psalms in this section, but I think maybe in a week or two, you know, y'all can talk more about them. Uh, but just that this idea, and you said this, of like it's giving voice to, it's giving expression to these real legitimate and understandable, you know, feelings about having been wronged or having been harmed. You know, I think about the persecuted church as well today. You know, the believers in China or North Korea or Afghanistan, I think, could read these things and have specific people in mind who have made their lives hard or literally hunted them or potentially, you know, whatever, beaten them, thrown them in prison. Like, And I think that there is something... That it is completely understandable. Like I do not, I do not sit in judgment over those brothers and sisters at all. If they're if they were to pray these things very specifically towards specific people, and so yeah, and so when I pray them, I, certainly the spiritual warfare element is in there. But also, I mean, I, I I try and be mindful. I try and pray them along with, to some extent, the persecuted church. I mean, mm. that's just part of my practice. You know, is that I. And we do this with our prayer sheet as we kind of have a country, you know, that we're praying, praying for, praying with each week. Because, again, there are, I mean, there really are, you know, communist leaders or radical Muslim terrorists or just crazy dictatorships out there in the world or just oppressive families, you know, who are going to who are going to beat to death or whatever else, you know, our brothers and sisters. And and God, I, I pray that God would stop them. Yeah. You know, like, absolutely. You know, do I want. Boko Haram in Central Africa to all repent and come to faith in Jesus? Sure, generally. (laughs) Do I Uh want all their trucks to break down and their guns to jam and all of them to not be able to leave camp because they have searing diarrhea today? (laughs) Yes, Yes. in Jesus' name I do. You know what I mean? And both can be true. Both can be true. Like I want 
my desire is for God to oppose them and destroy their power. And it's up to him. You know, and I think that's the other thing to rem- remember, too, is what's not happening is David isn't saying, well, maybe David was. <laughs> I'm just like praying these things and saying, so this is what I'm going to go do now. <laughs> you know, but rather saying, God, this is what we've experienced. We've been harmed. And we, because we're praying, because we're expressing it to you, we are placing it in your hands yes. to, to enact justice, to enact vengeance on our behalf as you see fit. You know, one of the themes that we see throughout the Psalms that, again, we, in our position, don't always know what to do with is a lot of this vindication language. Yeah. Or like rejoicing in the judgment of God. And I mean, that's going to come in a few weeks when we get to the upper 90s, you know, where it's like rejoice because he's coming to judge the earth. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, judge. Like, we don't we don't like that. Like, mm-hmm. that's what do you mean rejoice? Like, we're supposed to feel good about it? It's like, well, yeah, yeah. if you're the underdog, you know, which the, the, the Israelite people were and many Christians around the world are to this day, you know, it's like that's, that is the, the absolute best news you could receive is that Yahweh is coming to topple the power of your oppressors and establish a, a righteous kingdom. It's like, oh, man, you know, let's get there. Let's, let's do that. Let's be vindicated, you know, as, as God's people. Yeah. Um, and so I think all of that, you know, all of that can be properly, righteously kind of wrapped up in, in, in how we pray some of these psalms. So my last question, I mean, it's hard not to, like, go through with a comb each I individual know. psalm, but, you know. <laughs> I almost wept today as I was going through some of them, and I was like, I want to talk about this one, well, and I want to talk about we, this one. You know, I mean, we have Psalm 16, which is a beautiful psalm, oh. and, and that uh, Peter quotes in the Sermon and Acts. About the resurrection, we have Psalm 22, obviously the famous words of Jesus from the cross, and that's a vindicating psalm, you know, that that certainly Jesus was expressing his desperation, but also hope of vindication. Psalm 23, I oh, mean, come man. on, I mean, everybody loves Psalm 23. Psalm 55 has a lot of themes of betrayal, and I think it's just very resonant with, with Jesus' experience. Psalm 68 is so weird. There is so much <laughs> weirdness uh-huh. in Psalm 68 that it pains me not to dig in. Because we've got many gods. We've got a holy mountain that isn't Sinai. We've got all kinds of good stuff. All kinds all of good kinds stuff of in good 68. Unseen realm stuff in Psalm 68. <laughs> is that 86? You mean 86? No, no, it's Psalm 68. A lot of Elohim. A lot of, a lot of the gods going on in Psalm 68. We can talk about it, or you can talk about it next week. But maybe my last, and we've touched on it a few times, but I, I think it's good just to to uh, to pull it out more specifically. Like, how do we see the Psalms both reflecting or pre-reflecting the life of Jesus, but then also how Jesus himself? Like, what can we what can we kind of assume or reconstruct about how Jesus himself? I guess let's let's do one at a time. First question: How do we see the Psalms kind of reflected or or? whatever the opposite of reflecting pre-reflect because <laughs> they were written before his life but some of them very much you can just transpose them almost you know directly into some of jesus's experiences and i don't know if you just have if you don't have thoughts about that we can we don't have to linger but so the the jewish people at the time did not read the psalms messianically in the way that we do nearly as much as we do so there were some bits that are talking specifically about the coming savior, the coming king. Um, and those are, I think we could call them comfortably messianic. Ironically, the words that Jesus uses to describe his own experience are not always the ones we would pick. Mm-hmm. And what he finds himself, what he finds with himself, or how do I put that? 
the words that he uses to describe his own experiences are usually, or the one I'm speaking of specifically is, is 22 and that's a lament Psalm, Mm -hmm. right? And he uses scriptural language to describe what's happening to him, but there's metaphors, there's pictures clearly that just fit right over to Jesus. What do we make of that? Well, I think one of the things that's happening there is that Yahweh is using the scriptures in a way that is different than we would have. You don't read a lot of these and think that they're predictive. Mm-hmm. But what Yahweh can do in his telling of a story is use them as confirmations that something is happening. When you see this situation playing out perfectly later on, that's a confirmation that Yahweh's hands are behind it. And and I I mean, does that answer the question? I think that's what's happening, at least in part. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's just, and you, and you talked about this earlier, so we don't have to totally rehash it, but I just think it's worth, you know, it's just worth remembering that Jesus knew the Psalms. He, the Psalms were on his lips a lot. I mean, in his, you know, the moment of death, he is quoting a Psalm, you know, and so it's like they were in his mind. He had all of them or many of them. I mean, it's unclear if they had exactly the same set of Psalms that we do now, you know, but many of them he, he, he would have read and memorized and, and used for his own prayers. You know, when he's off, when we see him praying, going off in the morning or on the night before he died, like, I think it's very, we could be confident that a lot of that was Psalm. him praying, praying through Psalms and, and using Psalms um, for himself. And, you know, I mean, I think that there's, and I, I'm sure there are books about this, but like even just thinking about the Lord's Prayer and just how you can map so many of the Psalms, you know, onto, onto those sure. those petitions that it's almost like, you know, in some ways it's a summary of the book of Psalms, you know, like everything you find in the Psalms, you can you can kind of see those lines yeah. going into the Lord's Prayer. Of, well, it was, it was taken from a Jewish table prayer, which was taken from Psalms. Right, which was taken from Psalms, and so... Just that, you know, yeah, some of the Psalms can seem very distant to us for all the reasons you laid out, you know, that we talked about just now, that our lives are very different in, in, in some ways, you know. But I think that the the emotions that we feel, the effective, effective life, you know, that we lead, I mean, is not that much different than than uh, everybody else. And, and I think that we can, there's just a lot of, of goodness um, to be found in not only reading the Psalms, but in, you know, and I think this is why we spent so much time kind of talking about praying them really. It's because I think you can't help but pray them really. Um, I hope not. Like in some ways you can't, you can't read them. And, and C.S. Lewis was saying this, you can't read them like you, we've been reading Samuel and Chronicles. Like you have to engage a different sort of, of uh, framework or a different, I don't know, like a different way of reading um, and I think that that is for us, that's a prayerful reading. Like you can't not pray them as you read them. <laughs> Cause you know, it's hard to pray genealogies, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, you can pray in response to them, but like, it's hard, you know, to be, you know, but, but the Psalms, I mean, that's what they are. And so it's just, yeah, I just, I, I just want to commend again. And you, you said this a few times, but just commend that to everybody as we, as we have a whole week of just Psalms, you know, to really, to uh, really pray them as you read them. Absolutely. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Great. Pinging on silent. What? Your pings. Ah. Ping.
Well, that's always just like a little fun thing. Uh-huh. Yes, it's all on silent. <laughs> Great. 